Some say the world will end in fire. Some say in ice. Estimates show that glaciers are losing about 267 gigatons of ice every year. Wildfires in the United States have burned about 6 million acres so far this year, mostly in the West and Alaska. Pine Island Glacier is slipping toward the sea at an unprecedented rate. Extreme heat is gripping countries all around the world right now. This is the Ice and Fire podcast, and I'm your host, Teresa Soli. Here, we listen to glaciers melt actively as they transition from solid form into liquid water. And we hear from scientists as well as indigenous perspectives in order to better understand the repercussions of climate change in Alaska and beyond through place-based narrative and storytelling. Oh, it's been here almost a week, six days, and it's melted back 40 centimeters. But that's kind of on the low end for these ice cliffs. Uh, that uh, that one over there that they just that they just got a, a visual on, uh, it melted out uh, over a meter in that same time. I think I know enough of fate to know that for destruction, ice is also great and would suffice. So here we are on Kennecott Glacier. It's June. We traversed all sorts of scree, boulders, gravel that's sitting on top of or frozen into the ice. We also crossed a small stream that's flowing over and carving out a pathway into the glacier. So it's uh, in there so that we can measure directly uh, the rate of back wasting of the ice cliff. You'll see it has tape marks every 10 centimeters on it. That's Eric Peterson. We've heard from him already. He's a glaciologist monitoring Kennecott Glacier, and he has been doing so for the last three years. I can't imagine Eric in a suit. He is tall and lanky, has a ponytail, and he seems to move so naturally and easily over glaciated terrain. It's almost like this is his norm, and he is in his element. And it's been there how many days? Uh, this one right here, or the or the one that's yeah, this one right here has been here. Um, man, I think we drilled it in on Tuesday. Okay. No Monday, Monday. So it's been here. Yeah. Oh, it's been here almost a week, six days, and it's melted back 40 centimeters. But that's kind of on the low end for these ice cliffs. That one over there that they just got a, a visual on, it melted out over a meter in that same time. Eric was also one of the instructors at the glaciology school. Before school started, I went with him and some students to check on their ablation stakes and other methods being used to measure glacier retreat. And then you have the lower elevation region where ice flows to and melts out. This is called the ablation or melt zone. So that's a definition of the glaciology term ablation or ablation zone. The ablation zone can be thought of as the area that becomes warm enough in summer due to its lower elevation and, well, increasing temperatures to become the melt-out zone. And an ablation stake is merely a metal pole drilled into glacier ice in this melt zone. The classic, what they call the direct glaciological method, and it's been done since the young days of glaciology as a science, and I'm doing some of this, is 
you put a, a weather station out, you have to find out what your weather conditions are like at the glacier, because this controls how you add snow to create glacial ice, as well as how hot it is in the summer and your cloudy sky versus sunny sky conditions. All of these uh, weather inputs that determine how much melt you get at the uh, glacier surface. And this gets a little bit more complicated when you consider the rock covering on top of the glacier. I've put out a weather station on top of debris covered glacier to find out how the weather conditions change compared to clean ice. But then, so these are your input parameters to predict melt. You also have to know how much melt is occurring. And to do that, you use what are called ablation stakes. You can uh, drill a borehole into the ice. We will drill it down as far as 12 meters, so 36 feet. And then we have a long stick that we put down into that borehole and it will refreeze into the ice. The reach of the ice on the pole is recorded frequently so that researchers can quantify how much glacial melt is occurring at that specific location. As more and more of the pole becomes visible throughout the summer, when the surrounding ice melts away, measurements are taken, and you can easily visualize over the course of just one summer how much the glacier has changed in that spot just by looking at the stake protruding from the ice. And as the ice melts, the surface around that stake will be lowered. So we can measure, for example, we put the stick in the ice and we can measure, say, a few inches or a few centimeters sticking out. And we come back later in the summer and more of the stick is uh, poking out of the glacier. When we were on the Kennecott Glacier, the field team was actively checking and setting ablation stakes. Here's the method I observed for placing one. Make sure there are no hazards in the location where you're going to drill a hole to set the stake. In this case, there were potential hazards. The stakes were going to be set into ice cliffs, which are vertical extensions of ice. Remember earlier Eric and I mentioned that glaciers are not homogenous? Well, there are flat portions of glacier ice that can be walked on pretty easily with the right tools, like metal spikes on the shoes or boots, crampons. But there are also more vertical extensions like ice walls that lift into overhangs. These ice cliffs are harder to traverse, but with the right training and tools, like rope and ice tools, you can climb them. In this particular case, it was easy to find a route that wasn't steep at all to make way to the top of the ice cliff. The hazard that needed to be removed were rocks. Rocks sitting on the top of the ice cliff that could fall on someone's head and drilling into the ice below to place the stake. When the ice cliff is clear of hazards, a hoika drill. What I use is called a hoika steam drill, invented by Eric Hoika. And it's a, essentially a pressurized boiler that we put water into. We often source this direct from the glacier. We're on a glacier, there's glacier meltwater everywhere in the summer. Just scoop up uh, four quarts of melted glacier into this boiler and uh, put a fire under it. This drill then blasts steam into the glacier, creating a columnal hole resembling an open tube of air in the glacier. This is where the stake is typically inserted perpendicular or vertically into the ice. What are you doing? We are drilling a 12 meter hole into the glacier. Using uh, heat. That is, uh, how many feet is that? 36 feet roughly. Yeah, 36 feet. Um, so we're trying to drill that hole horizontally into the glacier to put a stick into it. And as the glacier melts, we will see how fast the glacier melts by seeing how fast the stick sticks out of the glacier. We are currently, um, this, yeah, this, uh, <laughs> it's called a hoika drill. 
and it uses one of the gas, camping gas canisters to heat up water, um, and then steam goes through this long pipe towards the end, and the hot steam will then melt the ice, and we're just drilling further and further. You want it to be at a slight downward angle for so ease like of insertion? Because huh? otherwise, if it's like slightly facing this way, the whole stick would like kind of slide out again. Oh, yes, yes, totally. Um, and this Seize way, like, gravity the water stays in and then just freezes back into the ice. Mm. Mm. In the case of my debris cover, I come back and it's about, about a meter of additional stake has stuck out. And that's a direct measurement of how much that surface is lowered due to uh, melt occurring. So we take those measurements of melt, which we have for specific points on the glacier and compare it with our uh, meteorological, our weather measurements, and we can develop a model of glacial melt that we can then extrapolate across the entire glacier surface and predict the distributed melt across the, uh, the glacier. So that's kind of a traditional glaciological method that I'm using for this project uh, to look at the ice cliffs and how this uh, complex rough surface of the glacier changes through time. I also use a lot of time-lapse cameras. So I've got a time-lapse camera out by my weather station to see how the, the surface changes, how the, the rocks are shifting, how uh, new ice cliffs are formed. And I've got uh, time-lapse cameras looking at ablation stakes that can measure the melt of ice cliffs as they back waste through the landscape and determine uh, how fast they melt, in particular in different changing weather conditions and throughout the summer season. With these particular stakes, glacier retreat of over a meter, or 3.28 feet, was documented over a period of just six days this past summer, Eric said. But glacial melt does not occur at the same rate in all locations of a glacier. It actually varies quite widely depending on the elevation and weather and rock coverage variation and direct sun exposure and a lot of physics that make very complex equations. So you can think about it as if you're wearing a black shirt on a hot day in the hot sun, you're of course going to be a lot warmer than if you were wearing a white shirt. And it's the same thing on a glacier. If it's wearing a thin layer of rocks, that's much darker than the ice and will absorb more energy, which will go straight into ice melt. So for a very thin layer of rocks, you increase melt. But if you go to a thicker layer of rocks, and this actually doesn't even have to be that thick, only, only a few inches, it starts to protect that ice from hot air temperatures and radiation and slows down melt. And if you increase the thickness of those rocks even more to, uh, say, a couple feet, you almost turn off the ice melt. But ultimately, some zones of a glacier melt very quickly in summer while at the same time, other parts of the exact same glacier aren't in retreat at all. As you walk across a single glacier, you'll see widely very different melt rates and, and many different things control that. The, the number one uh, biggest thing is what we call in science a lapse rate. And it sounds fancy, but it's something that anyone who hikes mountains or spent a lot of time in mountains uh, will know about intuitively. It's the fact that as you go up in elevation, it gets colder. Okay, so we're seeing here on Kennecott Glacier, where we are checking ablation stakes, that the glacier is melting or retreating quite rapidly in the summer. 
much more quickly than I would have expected personally. How do we define glacier retreat exactly from a glaciologist though? Let's just make sure we have that term or phenomenon in this audio narrative dictionary. Glacial retreat occurs when an individual glacier or set of glaciers or an ice field, it starts to melt more in its uh, melt zone than it receives new ice every year in its accumulation zone. As a result, that upper accumulation zone that's covered by snow, that shrinks. And the retreat occurs as uh, your total ice volume in the glacier is reduced. According to the National Park Service, Wrangell-St. Elias National Park is 35% covered by glaciers. That's a large amount. But statistics also indicate this is a 5% decline in ice coverage of the national park over the last 50 years. Across the globe, glaciers have been on a trajectory of retreat since the 1970s or earlier. Rates of change indicate that the pace of glacial retreat has been increasing rapidly over the course of the last decade. I'm having a hard time finding a trusted list of glaciers in the contiguous 48 states, or an accurate statistic for how much of the contiguous 48 states is still glaciated. I was surprised to read that Wyoming still has several glaciers. According to the U.S. Geological Survey, less than 0.5% of North America is covered by glaciers today. Usually when we say dead glacier, we mean that it's no longer flowing. Dead ice is used a lot. So the Kennecott Glacier is still very much an alive glacier, but the last few kilometers of it before the toe is dead ice. It's no longer moving, it's just sitting in place. Many of the glaciers in the contiguous 48 states are described as dead glaciers and are expected to disappear in the next 50 years as the planet continues to warm. The last major ice age ended over 10,000 years ago. Perhaps not so coincidentally, as the ice-covering Earth started to melt away, the first records of indigenous Alaskans are believed to be dated to the same time. In the next episode, we'll discuss how the movements of glaciers impacted the movements of native indigenous people in the area, well before Russians and Americans arrived here. Some say the world will end in fire. Some say in ice. From what I've tasted of desire, I would hold with those who favor fire. But if it had to perish twice, I think I know enough of fate to know that for destruction, ice is also great and would suffice. Fire and Ice is a poem written by Robert Frost and was recited by James Marcus. Thank you to the Wrangell Mountain Center and locals in McCarthy like Mark Vale. Here's a shout out to the University of Alaska Fairbanks and the Glaciers Group, as well as students who attended the International Summer School in Glaciology in summer of 2022. Also to Eric Peterson for being so cool for sharing his work in time. Thanks to everyone that assisted by filling out a customer discovery survey and to the Center for One Health Research at UAF. Thank you to National Public Radio for letting us use their headlines. Music in this episode is from Free Music Archive and Blue Dot Sessions. Financial support for producing this podcast came from Alaska EPSCoR and the National Science Foundation. 
University of Alaska Fairbanks Graduate School in the form of a travel grant, the Alaska Center for Innovation, Commercialization, and Entrepreneurship, Center ICE, as well as the National Science Foundation Innovation Corps Program. This material is based upon work supported by the National Science Foundation under award number OIA 1208927 and by the state of Alaska. Any opinions, findings, and conclusions or recommendations expressed in this material are those of the author and do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Science Foundation. This podcast was hosted, written, and narrated by Teresa Soli and edited and produced by myself, Mary Ald. This is the Ice and Fire podcast. Thanks for listening.